and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Yasmin Serham. Do you know what the first curry house in the UK was called? Or how many people are required to form a jury in Scotland? If not, you probably wouldn't be able to pass the Life in the UK test, the exam that hundreds of thousands of people take every year in order to achieve indefinite leave to remain or citizenship in this country. But don't worry, the vast majority of Britons probably wouldn't be able to either, including one David Cameron. That's because this exam is difficult, expensive, and in some instances, factually inaccurate. Since the requirement was first introduced in 2005, some 2 million people have sat the exam. But the government has failed to address the criticisms that the test fails to focus on the practical knowledge required to live in this country, and instead offers something akin to a bad pub quiz. As someone who has taken this exam, I can attest that the Life in the UK test is truly a memorization exercise. But the person best positioned to tell you about the test, its faults, and what can be done to improve it is Tom Brooks, the Dean of Durham Law School and the author of Reforming the UK's Citizenship Test, Building Bridges, Not Barriers. Thomas spent nearly a decade researching and critiquing the Life in the UK test and, in his latest book, offers recommendations for how the exam can be improved. Welcome to the podcast, Tom. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. So to start, can you give us a bit of a primer about the history of this test? How did it come about and what was its goal? The history of it goes back to 2001. Now, when you say uh, that something politically important happened in 2001 relating to citizenship tests, people might naturally link up something like 9-11 that happened uh, that later that year. But no, it actually was the riots that were happening around Oldham in 2001 in the spring. The Blair government at the time was becoming concerned about what it saw as the emergence of what they're calling kind of parallel communities, mm-hmm. of uh, migrant communities uh, kind of uh, living side by side with others, but effectively going different ways and, and occasionally leading. There, there was a worry that what they were seeing, um, the unrest they were seeing might be something they might see elsewhere. And so what they wanted to do is find some way of shared values or some way of, of integrating communities old and new together. In that spring, around the time of the uh, riots, Australia just so happens to have finished uh, its own review, uh, looking into Australian values and Australian citizenship. And there they had decided that they were going to go ahead with a citizenship test for people to become Australian in future. Now, the irony is, in a way, that Britain went ahead with creating its own citizenship test before Australia got around to doing theirs. So it's an odd thing to say that Britain was influenced by Australia and its model for doing so, but beat Australians to doing it. However, Britain was not the first to have tests. You have tests in several countries in Europe. The United States has had one since the 1980s. So mm-hmm. they've been around for a while. Neither Australia or Britain are new to them. But the origins was was around that, was about thinking about integration, bringing people together. And what would those shared ideas about citizenship be? The aims and purpose was around bringing people together and integrating, though some of my research has shown that actually the test has been kind of counterproductive to that end. And it certainly has never been subject to any official review. 
That's such an interesting backstory. And, and your book, which I would recommend all listeners go and pick up, is a very great read. It's just so interesting to think like nothing <laughs> of nothing unites people like revision. In your book, you describe the test as, as a bureaucratic hurdle and, and a bad pub quiz, which is pretty fitting given how seemingly random some of the questions are. I mean, what does your research tell us about how these questions were formulated? Oh, my goodness. An excellent question. I mean, so... This, this goes somewhat back to so what the government then did next. After they, so after Australia did its review into what Australian values are and, and what to do about it, the Blair government went ahead and did something fairly similar. There was a review led by John Denham, who was uh, an MP for Southampton, into kind of shared values and so on. And then this was followed on by a report done by Sir Bernard Crick, the old and the new report, it was called. So in Crick's review, he had the group of folks go around the UK asking the question of, so what brings people together? What is it that makes us British? What is Britishness all about? And what was interesting about this report when you see some of the findings is that as they're going here and there across the UK, people weren't really telling them about what was unique about being British. They were telling them about what made their area unique from the rest of Britain. <laughs> so when he was going to Scotland, they were saying, you know, what made us British was things like haggis, food always comes up, mm. things, um, hogmanay celebration and so forth. When it goes to uh, Wales, uh, Welsh cakes somehow uh, comes into the mix. Well, Morris dancing, rugby loving, haggis eating folks isn't something that necessarily unites everyone as British. They're, they were effectively saying, what made them not just different from other people from Britain, but made them different from the French, uh, different from, from other nationalities. And so actually the Crick Review struggled a bit in trying to pin down what it was, what inclusive features of Britishness there were out there. What they wound up going uh, pinning down on were things like, for their shared values, shared institutions as well. So democracy, rule of law, respect, but also the different programs we use, uh, the government that unites us all, and of course, uh, regional uh, assemblies and so on, too. And they became the, the center for, for the test. And of course, that doesn't give you a whole lot to ask questions about. You know? So name you know, one of a handful uh, of, of values. There's only so many questions you can come up with that. Or uh, questions about local bodies and so on, what they came up with was, well, basically what they are, that there's a Scottish parliament, that there's a Welsh assembly and so on, and how many people are in it. The, the problem is that to, to kind of flesh this test out, one of the issues was that the numbers of people involved kept changing, but the test didn't. So mm -hmm. the, the original test uh, had the wrong number of MPs as the correct answer. Uh, so they then try to correct it. But then Parliament changed the number again. And so it was wrong. In the current edition, for those who are wanting to know uh, how many MPs there are, there's 650. But for the last several years, the government has been keen to change that number to 600. And so what they've done in the current test version is that you are not asked how many members of Parliament there are, but they've kept in the number of regionals, you need to know how many are in the Scottish Parliament, but not how many are in the Parliament in Westminster. And you get some oddities like this. You also then have oddities about other facts, 
about British life. So the government rightly, as I would called on them to do, rightly had had questions about British history and culture. Uh, prior to the current test, there were not questions about this that you were tested on. And that was also a bit odd. And it set the British test very different from others in having no questions about British history. Now there are, but they've gone on with some particularly strange ones. You know, you need to know exactly, you know, who is in which order of the wives of Henry VIII. Otherwise, you might fail and have to leave the country. And, you know, is Catherine Howard fifth or sixth? You know, should that matter that much is, a, is an issue we can debate. And also um, the question, uh, one thing that I draw on in the book, the issue of, of, of the person who has the most facts about their life. Mm. One might kind of think about, well, there's a lot of historically important people. There was certainly, well, Queen Elizabeth II for one, Elizabeth I for another, moving away from King Henry VIII, kings and queens. You might say Attlee or Churchill, depending upon your political leanings. But no, no. The person who has about 20-odd facts to be memorized about his life is Sheikh Dean Mohammed. And when I raise this to people, they often, you know, say, well, well, who is he? <laughs> um, <laughs> and what do I need to know about him? Well, you need to know where he was born. He was born in Bengal. You need to know the name of his wife. He's the only non-royal in the book whose spouse's name you need to potentially know in the book, that she's Irish, that he lived there, lived in Ireland before coming to the UK. And most importantly, that he set up Britain's first curry house, what street it was on, what it was named as well. What you don't need to know, which I find very curious, is that the restaurant he started was actually only open for about a year or two before it closed. There's no blue plaque for this curry house. And, and that's the kind of stuff. So you have historical facts and culture about things like, you know, curry in Britain. You might think, well, nothing strange necessarily about that. But you need to know about the existence of a place that isn't even honored by a blue plaque, that um, wasn't around very long. And why so many facts about someone like this? It's seemingly to trip people up, not yeah. to, you know, it's, it's not so much uh, building bridges, but about creating barriers and, and on an arbitrary basis of a memory test, uh, which I think is a bad way uh, of doing it. You asked the question about like, you know, who was doing this kind of stuff? I doubt it was ever any immigration minister. I spoke to former Home Secretary Jackie Smith. She, you know, surmised to me that this is often, you know, if it reads like committee work, it was probably a committee and, and probably passed through the desk of the Home Secretary or immigration minister for sign-off, but probably didn't have any questions necessarily from themselves. And then it makes you wonder about the accountability of mm. these things. There's been no consultation other than consultation on what Britishness might be before the test was written, there's been none after a test was produced. So are these the questions that help integrate people? Are these the ways in which we better define Britishness? Is this, did, it, did it work? Has this been helpful? Has this helped people integrate to society or not? Um, the government of uh, Labour or Tory, this is uh, not a partisan remark, um, none have done a consultation into whether this has met the original aims or purposes. And it seems as you go through some of these questions as to 
what's the name of the first curry house that was barely on the planet or, or how many feet tall is the London Eye, 443 feet? Why is that necessary to know this, to be, uh, to be British, when no, it's not taught in schools, it is not part of the citizenship curriculum, it all seems to be things to kind of trip people up, written by a committee of people of who we do not know who they are, for, you know, and if they wanted to trip people up and make things difficult, arguably there'd be other ways of doing it, much easier ways of doing it you know, make the process of applying more expensive, Mm. do things on other basis that a bit more transparent, a bit more direct than this, which Mm. is a bit random in the bureaucratic exercise as so described. You're absolutely right. And, and, you know, certainly from, from the vantage point of, of, of an immigrant to to this country or someone who obviously has lived here for a number, you know, the requisite years to be applying for, you know, whether it's indefinite leave or citizenship, you know, you do pick up things about the place. You, you probably know what haggis is when you walk in, you know, you do Mm. learn things, Mm. you know, mixing, mixing with society and speaking with people, but, but it's the seemingly, the seemingly random facts that, you know, I, I put a lot of them to, to my British partner being like, do you know this? Do you know who this person is? You know, I was particularly struck by the sort of later chapters of the current study guide where they name all these important Britons. And I think you mentioned in the book, this is actually skewed largely male yes. um, in, in the study guide. You know, do you know what they're known for? Do you know what they they invented? And and he didn't have the foggiest. But yeah, I mean, it's so striking. And I, I guess I wonder, just to kind of illustrate this more for, for listeners, are there any other types of questions you can share, favorites, past or present, that represent, as you kind of describe the good, the bad, the ugly? Kind of broad way of describing this is the, the good are the kinds of things that you might expect to see in a in a test like this. So it's a difficult headspace to be in, imagining you are drawing up a test for British citizenship. But if you were, what kinds of things might you put in there? And, you know, one idea, you know, there's a question about uh, where do you pay your taxes to? And, and that mm-hmm. is the H- HMRC. And, and that, you know, that seems to me a, a good uh, kind of question to ask. Of course, another potentially good question to ask would be if you wanted to phone the police or emergency services, you know, to report a fire or a crime, who do you call? That was actually removed uh, from the uh, current uh, test. So that's an example, I think, of the of the bad, where things that were in the test that they bizarrely took out. Or um, another example is that there's a number of questions that have been in, been in the, the test handbook about programs that you had to know about that you either couldn't access as an immigrant anyway, or had been stopped. So when I set the test, uh, they had stopped, if I recall, if I had my timings right, the educational maintenance allowance. But I had to know how it operated, even though I couldn't access it, even if I passed the test. I wasn't going to be able to, 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 to claim it. An example of, of the ugly uh, that I give in my favorite question, we all have our favorites. My favorite was from the the second edition, which was live between 2009 to 2013. And in that, it asked you where you would go to get a national insurance number. Now, my wife is British. So when you ask your your partner raised in Britain, you know, where did they go? Uh, The answer is very simple. Uh, They went nowhere. Uh, One day they opened up the post and it was there. They they got it in the post. Uh, That's how you get it in this country. Uh, There you are back in that time. The correct answers for the test were something like there was the Social Security Office, which no longer exists. There was Job Center Plus, which did exist and is the correct answer. 
And then there was um, there was another department that didn't exist either. And of course, the correct answer was I I phoned up the home office. You have these kind of bizarre examples of things you're asked about, of things that you can't go to, that don't exist, that aren't here, that aren't what you do. But you need to memorize these what I would describe what I describe as factually incorrect correct answers. So, for example, on the test right now, it asks about what is the largest denomination, you know, the, the, the largest bill you can get in pounds in the UK. The correct answer is 50 pounds. But that is only true of the Bank of England. It is not true for the Bank of Scotland. It is not true for the Bank of Northern Ireland. So there it's 100 pounds. So the correct answer for the test is factually untrue. And that, I think, is absolutely shocking that there's still stuff on the test that isn't right. And it's just a remarkable lack of care over something that is seemingly so very serious. So I joke and I laugh about it, and I I will want the reader to shake their head. I want them to have wry smiles. I am trying to poke fun a bit at the government as I go across. But of course, there was nothing funny about spending a lot of money <laughs> and spending a lot of time in paying for a test and needing, you know, putting together your application and making a life in a new country and preparing for this test when you see that, you know, several of the correct answers for a test for something so important as being uh, becoming a British citizen actually are factually untrue and that so many of the things that are in there, even if they are factually true, are ethically suspect right. as the basis for becoming British. That we must all know that there was a vote that Winston Churchill was voted the greatest Britain of all time. It turns out that that vote uh, was a BBC television series, I think going back uh, some years, where you only were given limited choice and you had to pay to uh, lodge your vote. Um, hardly a conclusive, and and that's, that's it, folks. Uh, you know, he wins uh, kind of thing with no, you know, nothing said about how this came to be. Absolutely arbitrary and also absolutely partisan as well. Yeah. That was something else that I tried to uh, make clear that there is a partisanship about the test that is um, uh, worrying as well. So not only is it a uh, nameless group of individuals pulling this together seemingly too quickly, making mistakes, leaving things out, and including things that have no right being there in a test for British, uh, British uh, citizenship, but also skewed in a, in a uh, political uh, way as well, which also sets it apart from the kinds of tests that we see elsewhere, including um, in the United States, uh, which I put as a uh, as an example of, of, of how to do it uh, differently and how to do some of it better.
your book outlines really clearly sort of the parameters. I mean, you talked about how this is a pretty costly test. Um, you you pay 50 pounds for yeah. the privilege of taking it each time. And, and if you don't pass it on, on the first try, you can take it basically the next, so once a week, seven yeah. days afterwards. So that can add up, I guess, if, if you don't, if you don't study and then, you know, um, or, or if it's, you know, you just find it's very difficult and, and you end up paying um, all that. I mean, can you talk a bit about how how this test compares to other exams, like like the US one that you just mentioned, but but also what the pass rate is like. Yes, the test does things differently than other than other other countries. So some of the differences between how the um, UK manages things versus other countries is first of all, fifty pounds is more. The going rate in the UK is more expensive uh, than elsewhere. So mm-hmm. common criticism of the UK immigration system generally especially by those who go through it firsthand, like we have, uh, even if it's not our own personal opinion, it is a common uh, opinion of others, is that it's out to soak uh, the immigrants, that a lot of the fees for students, for work, for citizenship, for other things, are typically more expensive here than elsewhere. Uh, And also here, you have to pay this fee 50 pounds a go every time you sit it, for example, in the United States, it's less, I forget the exact figure, I think it's roughly half the, the price. But if you fail it in the United States, you can sit it a second time, no fee. Here, you got to pay every time you want to do it. You know, I now have ticked a box in the journey <laughs> to becoming a permanent resident to my indefinitely remain. I am after I get that, I then have to wait a year and a day before I can apply for, for citizenship. I am I'm at least a year or so or, or more away from uh, citizenship. In, in most other countries, once you've passed their citizenship test, you're then eligible to uh, swear an oath at the next mm-hmm. ceremony, uh, whether it be Australia, France, Germany, Netherlands, the United States, and off you go. You are a citizen of that country. Whereas here, the um, the new subtitle for the current edition is a guide for new residents. It's really a residence, a permanent residency exam. So it, it, it's gone from being a citizenship test in name and in, in spirit. Um, it's exactly what it was in 2005 uh, when it started to now... It is one that is also required for permanent uh, residence. So it's not even for, for citizenship. You need it for citizenship too. But other countries do not require a knowledge test like this to be a resident of a country like the UK does. The other final thing I would say is that the UK's focus on trying to trip people up is, I think, another distinguishing feature. So let's compare a, a very brief range of just two others. So the United States, if you wanted to take their test for citizenship, all the test questions, all the information is available on multimedia for the sight impaired, et cetera, et cetera, all on an accessible website. Everything made plain to you. How many questions you might be asked, how the format might look, uh, everything that might happen. You do not know which questions will be asked. There could be anything from that, but everything you could be asked is right there in front of you nothing hidden. About 110 questions that they choose from, uh, and you get about 10 on the day. On the Australian test, they have a PDF file that uh, have it in accessible formats. 
that anybody can download freely. Everything you might be asked is there. Now, slight difference is they don't give uh, all the questions you might be asked. All the information is right there. It's about 40-ish pages long. You might say that's still quite a lot, but it's 40-ish pages long, and, and that's what you're, you're tested on. And very little in it that is controversial. So there, there used to be questions or a suspected question about who is the greatest cricket player, <laughs> but the information was fairly circumscribed. The UK test, you have a test handbook that's 180 pages long. It has approximately 3,000 facts, including about 278 historical dates. And the format is not explicit in the handbook. So mm -hmm. that you will be getting multiple choice questions that might have four choices where you have to choose one correct answer or both correct answer or true or false format. This you only find out if you also buy the official study guide or if you buy the official practice and question handbook. You are not told what the explicit format will be in the official handbook itself, which you have to buy. So you have to buy all the British stuff. <laughs> it's not free like it is elsewhere. You have to pay for it every time you sit it. That's not true if you have to say in some places like the United States. There's this partisanship element I think is very worrying. And it's far more stuff to try to cram in your brain than either the Australian or the American or other tests um, that are out there. In terms of the pass rate, the pass rate you know, fluctuates from year to year. It's typically around, give or take, uh, between 65 to 70% pass each year. Mm. On the whole, it is broadly fairly high. Most people do pass it. Of course, it might be a sign of, well, you know, people tend to only sit it once they feel reasonably confident of passing it. It's not any reflection necessarily on how many people are waiting around who could take the test, but are not taking it, but for the cost. Uh, that's something that uh, there hasn't been any study on that. We see a big fluctuation, though, interesting, in terms of how different nationalities fare right. on the test. So, for example, if I was to give you some extremes, Americans and Australians, who, of course, would most, if not all, would be native English speakers. Of course, not all Americans are, not all Australians are, but most might be native English speakers. Both countries also with their own citizenship tests. They have a pass rate of about 97, 98%. So near perfect. When it comes to, if I recall, Turkey, Iraq, you saw a pass rates of about 45% or so. I recall it being less than than 50%. So you have a big variety, a big difference in how different nationalities uh, do it. I have put to the government about the gender breakdown and also looking at age. But when it comes to gender, the government, well, obviously, you know, you would tick a box on the application form um, and whether you pass the test and the number of your um, pass um, letter. Um, so this information would be received by the Home Office. The Home Office claims it doesn't keep records of that. And something that I'd be very interested to see is the gender differential by nationality about would there be any differences there in pass rates. I suspect that there could be, but the government doesn't have any data on it. And so there is no data out there to, to go on. Thank you so much, Tom, for taking the time. Thank you so much.
Listeners, if you enjoyed this podcast, you can back us on Patreon so we can keep making them. There's a link in the show notes or just search Bunker Patreon Podcast. For as little as £3 a month, you'll get episodes early and ad-free, access to merch, and all the knowledge you need at your fingertips to sound interesting in any situation. This is Yasmin Sirhan. Thanks for joining me in the bunker. And for those of you who are curious, the answer to the first two questions are Hindustan Coffee House and 15. The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Yasmin Sirhan. The producers were Alex Rees and Jack Gerbertson, with assistant production from Kasia Tomashevich. The lead producer is Jacob Jarvis, and the audio producer is me, Jade Bailey. The group editor is Andrew Harrison, and our marketing manager is Gina Richard. Music by Kenny Dickinson, with artwork by James Parrott. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.